Welcome to another episode of Medical Liability Minute, where I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And we do speak for more than a minute. One day we will change the name of the podcast. We're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. So today we do another episode of Ripped from the Headlines, where we go over uh, news stories that most of our members haven't seen because we get access to news sources that, I guess, put most people to sleep. But we distill it, we digest it, and then we we deliver the nuggets of wisdom so they don't become the protagonist in one of our episodes of Rip from the Headlines, right? Absolutely. Let's see if we can keep people from the pain of the learning curve. All right, let's dive in. Okay, so let's. Uh, th- this this matter comes to us from the sunny state of Florida. The uh, plaintiff in this case is a uh, orthopedic uh, surgery associates, and they filed a claim against a defendant physician alleging that in 2014 the employed defendant. Uh, was working for them as a sports medicine physician. As a condition of that employment, the defendant signed a, you guessed it, agreement not to compete with uh, the employer. Also, not to uh, solicit. Uh, This period was to last for two years following the termination of his employment. And on November of 2017, the defendant gave 30 days notice of his intention to uh, terminate his employment with the, the, the plaintiff in this, uh, this case. He was reminded of his legal obligations of the uh, restrictive covenants, the non-compete uh, during that uh, time period. But nonetheless, the, um, <clears throat> the defendant uh, went forth and uh, competed and uh, solicited uh, services from uh, the uh, his former employer's uh, uh, patients. So well, you got to love the throw caution to the wind, where there's a, an agreement in advance says I'm not going to compete, I'm not going to take your patients. I uh, says by the way, I'm leaving. I'm here in the community. Um, he's reminded of the document that he signed. Perhaps we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he forgot what he had signed, but they dusted off the cobwebs and went through it again, and he did it anyway. So what happened after that? Well, like, it, you're using it, the word plaintiff and defendant, so I'm guessing this turned into litigation. It did it, it did indeed. And there are even further allegations that the, the employer or the, or the plaintiff said that the defendant, former employee, was falsely holding himself out as still working for the, the, the plaintiff and uh, used one of his prescription uh, forms, former prescription forms, uh, to write a uh, referral uh, prescription for a uh, for a patient. Now, hang on, this is a little confusing here. We may have switched plaintiff and defendant there, but still, I think the gist of it is is that the guy who left was, I mean, he he planted his own flag, but was still um, telling some patients that he worked for his original employer and you said there may have also been a forged prescription related to this as it relates to a referral very confusing something along those lines it's a little difficult to understand why you would leave the employment but yet try to convince third parties or or patients that you're still working for your 
your old office, but that was the allegation. Nonetheless, I think we it's clear from this that this former employee was out there providing services that contractually he was not to be performing. And that was the basis for this uh, for this this lawsuit. So this brings us squarely into the world of non-competes and non-solicitation agreements, which is a world that is at present uh, quite dynamic. And there are lots of things going on. Uh, and I think we need to to get people up to speed on this. Yeah. So I think there are several initial take-home points. One is that every state treats them differently. And some states treat healthcare within that state differently. So that's number one. Every state treats non-compete and non-solicitation agreements uniquely. They may be similar to other states, but I wouldn't just come up with a global statement as to how non-compete agreements um, will hold up in healthcare. Every state is different. Number two, even within a given state, things change. So what works today may not work several years from now. It may very well be that if the law changes, your existing employees will be covered, but new employees will be beholden to new rules. So there are times you need to dust off the cobwebs, take a look at the agreement, and still identify whether it passes muster um, today compared to when it was implemented uh, a number of years ago. But let's, I mean, every, so the prototypical state that everyone talks about is California. California makes such non-compete agreements unenforceable. So what does that mean? It means that you can certainly um, write one and you can have your employee sign it, but it also means that it can't be enforced. So if you try and enforce it, you will learn, hopefully from your attorney, they will tell you that, no, we can't enforce it. Of course, you can always bluff and force the other side to spend money to defend themselves. Um, but I think that's a losing proposition. If, if they call your bluff, you may end up, um, well, certainly you will lose. And then number two, you may end up being responsible for bills accrued in terms of that bluff. So California is the prototypical state for some time now. You could not write a, you cannot sign an enforceable um, non-compete agreement. Other states like Texas state, well, non-compete agreements are okay, but, and this is important, but the doctor needs to be able to, the departing doctor needs to be able to buy out the non-compete provision for a reasonable predefined amount. Meaning in the non-compete agreement, it will say, um, Dr. Siegel agrees not to compete with the um, the uh, generous employer that that hired him, but to the extent he wants to buy out this restriction, this is the cost. And you can't just stick in there, you know, $25 million. It needs to be reasonable value. Perhaps what you know what your investment was in terms of trying to get. The, uh, the now departing doctor up to speed um, to be accepted in the community and um, get them a referral base uh, and so forth. So those are two interesting um, bookends uh, for states. And there are other states that allow them as long as the time frame for the restriction and the geographic limitation 
are reasonable. So the longer the time frame being restricted and the larger the geographic limitation, the more unenforceable it is. And this is a very lawyerly, it depends. I mean, people say, well, how long should it be? And what is the geographic distribution? And, you know, it just kind of, the answer is, it depends. The the shorter the time frame, the more enforceable. The the um, the tinier the geographic restriction, the the more um, enforceable it is. And a lot of this depends upon where you live and how hard it is for patients to find other doctors to take care of them. So, for example, let's assume you are the only um, practice um, doing oncology in rural Montana. Okay, I'm just I had to pull an example out. So we're using rural Montana here. So um, if you're the only practice there and you tell the, um, in, in the restriction, you say that for two years, you will not be able to practice within um, 100 miles of the office. That is very limiting for the patients of the community. I mean, it means that the pa patients in the community have no option. So if that were to be litigated, I think that you would probably, as the departing um, doctor, have a pretty good chance of beating the the non-compete agreement. I think you'd probably be able to practice. On the other hand, if um, we change that paradigm to um, a much more urban area that is over-doctored, and there are plenty of specialists in the neighborhood where patients have almost unlimited choice, I think as long as a state law allows it, I think I think it'll hold as long as, you know, the the geographic and time restrictions um, are reasonable. So what are your thoughts, Mike, in terms of time restrictions? If we were if you're just just to, going to give global advice on narrowing the the time restriction so it is enforceable, what is your guidance? Well, you're absolutely right that this is a creature of state law, but we need to be aware that there are storm clouds brewing on the horizon here. Um, the Biden administration in July of 2021 uh, charged the Federal Trade Commission uh, with looking into physician non-competes as a restraint upon trade. And so we may see the federal government enter into this in the future? Not right now. Right now, you're absolutely correct. This is on a state-by-state -state basis, but we're seeing states change their rules um, with some regularity now. My state, I'm speaking to you from Indiana, changed its rule uh, last summer in 2020 uh, to much along the Texas line of having a reasonable buyout. Next door to me in Illinois, they have uh, a change of their law that says non-compete agreements uh, may be enforceable, but if the person has only worked for a year or less at the facility and then leaves, it's non-enforceable, meaning that you have to have been employed for more than a year before any kind of a non-compete could kick in. Certainly these restrictions as to the total time, the three components of, of time and in geographic area and the scope of the practice are all balanced. Courts in general do not like non-competes. In lots of 
cases talk about patients having some rights in this whole thing too. Just because they can get treated by another physician doesn't mean that they want to, and that they should have some rights to be treated by the physician of their choice. That's the way some states look at this. So back to uh, Jeff, your original point, Jeff, of it's a, it's a creature of state law is absolutely a true. In my experience, a year non-compete is uh, in states where these are enforced is is in the safe zone. If you try to push it much past 18 to 24 months, it starts to become very difficult. And certainly at the four or five year level, um, they're almost always uh, found to be unreasonable. So I don't know if that answers your question on timing of, of non-competes, but it, it's hard because each state is a little bit uh, different. And this is not something that you should uh, try to uh, pull up uh, Google, find a, a form and go it alone. This is an area of change in the law and unique uh, situations in each state. And you, if you're going to try to go down this path, you want to have somebody who knows what's going on in the jurisdiction where you're located. And without making this too wonky in terms of state law, um, there are some states, and I believe ours, North Carolina, um, includes is included in this bucket, where if you don't have it written down properly in advance, the judge does not have the discretion to, they call it blue pencil or blue ink, whatever it is, to make a change to one of the provisions. So for example, if, if we've agreed that two years is too long, but one year is appropriate, um, and the document itself says two years, the judge does not have the discretion to just change that one provision from two years to one year. It means that the agreement in general is unenforceable, which includes all the other terms and condition in that non-compete agreement, which means that you wanted to have gotten it right in the first place. Now, what they're saying is, they don't want the judge to have the discretion to start picking away at this agreement to make the agreement work. They're basically saying, here's the law, get the law right in the first place with a document, which goes back to your guidance a little bit earlier. If you want to have a non-compete agreement in a state where it is enforceable, you should meet with an attorney who understand these things and has done them before and is up to date and up to speed and can give you a document that can be enforceable. I'll tell you the thing that you do not want is something that gives you a false sense of security where you believe you've dotted all the I's and crossed the T's because you downloaded something from LegalZoom or you got it from a buddy of yours in another state and you think, wow, I've saved a few bucks here and I've definitely got this thing all buttoned up because if and when you try to enforce it and you learn that based on the content of the agreement, it's unenforceable, this will be an expensive headache for you because at the very least, you're going to need to pay the lawyer to look at the document that you crafted. It's not his work product, so he'll he'll be charging by the hour while he scolds you for using somebody else's plagiarized document, correct? Oh, I'm, I'm sure that there'll be um, some kind of a lesson learned by increase of legal fee associated with it for those that try to go it alone on this. Um, not that there not that there should be, and there are any number of areas that you are fine to work through without counsel. This is one that is, in my mind, in the minority that you just don't want to try uh, to do on your own because 
it's so variable and there's so much change going on in it right now. And frankly, there's a lot at stake here, right? You're going to invest highly in um, a physician that's coming to your, your practice. If they leave, they can take large numbers of, of patients. So there is, in my opinion, no small mistake here. And that's the scenario in which it's worth getting a little bit of assistance with this. And I think it cuts both ways, meaning that whether you're the employer or the employee, I think both sides need to have the agreement analyzed just so everybody knows what they're getting into. It, it's an ugly thing to join a practice and then decide this is horrible. I can't make it work. Um, and then you learn, well, I guess I need to sell my house and take my kids out of school and move to another state. Um, there may be some middle ground approaches. And one thing that is interesting that you alluded to would be scope of practice, meaning what are you doing? How is it defined? And so almost none of these agreements say that you can't practice medicine broadly, okay? If you are a particular specialist and say you're being hired to do that particular specialty and you're going to sit out the year in the, in the neighborhood, not go anywhere, but change what you're doing to another type of practice. So for example, if you were a surgeon, um, and let, I'll just say bariatric surgeon, and you are hired to do bariatric surgery, if you decide that you're going to work in an ER um, in everybody's backyard or an urgent care center, um, based on how the agreement is written, that probably would work, would it not? I, th I think that that's right. Certainly the ER is a, um, is a safe zone because <clears throat> it's hard to say that you're pulling patients from your former practice uh, into an emergency room setting. That The whole idea behind non-competes is that you're not pulling away business from your, your past em employer. And emergency rooms are just a setting where that doesn't, doesn't happen, right? So they are typically a safe, a safe place to go if you've been in, in private practice and are uh, looking for somewhere to land for uh, six or 12 months as you wait out a non-compete. It's interesting. I thought that um, now that I think about it, if you actually decide to do ERs and you're seeing the patients from the practice, they probably should be sending you a thank you note because you're seeing the patients. They don't have to get out of bed to actually see the patient in the emergency room. But I jest there. <laughs> the jury will disregard that statement. All right. So we've done kind of like our quick summary of non-compete agreements, but in this particular case, there was a second provision, not just non-compete, but it's called non-solicitation. So what what is non-solicitation? What does that mean other than an agreement, and a non-solicitation agreement means I will not solicit. Solicit what? Well, there, there are generally two areas. One, soliciting patients. Now, mm -hmm. you can't practice but what if you could solicit patients to move to a practice that you're ultimately going to go work for? That's one area. But typically we see these in terms of staff, that you will not solicit uh, quality staff away from your former employer uh, to, to work at a new facility. 
And let's say you've, you've worked around the scope of practice. So you're now at a competing entity, but you're doing a different area of medicine. So we don't really have to worry about you taking patients from your, your past uh, practice, mm -hmm. but instead you decide to gut them by taking away their key staff members. And that's what a non-solicitation agreement is really geared towards preventing. So um, non-solicitation is the euphemism for the more colloquial term poaching, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And if you if if you um, if you knowingly solicit employees from the old practice, you can be on the hook for something called torturous interference with a pre-existing contract, among other things. Which I think, and, and that becomes even more of an interesting issue. Um, and let me let me let me lay it out a little bit differently so that. Um, so this makes more sense. Let's say that you don't necessarily set up your own shop down the block, but you join a competing practice. So you are an employee in an old practice. You say, I can't take it here any longer. I'm leaving. You struck up a relationship with another specialist who's competing with the first practice and they decide to hire you. Okay. If if you had this um, non-solicitation agreement with your prior employer and the new person hires you, arguably they have interfered with this pre-existing contract, with this pre-existing agreement. What does that mean? It means that your new employer could be on the hook for this, this tort called tortuous interference with pre-existing contracts. So how does that play out? It plays out by, um, a letter being generated by the prior employee's attorney. It goes to your new employer and says, oh, by the way, I see you just hired Dr. Siegel. Uh, congratulations. Um, he was obviously, he was employed here previously. You probably knew that. Um, what you probably do not know is that Dr. Siegel had signed a non-solicitation um, agreement um, and a non-compete agreement. And you have actually um, hired him, and because you have hired him, um, you are interfering with this pre-existing agreement, and it creates a potential headache uh, for the new employer. And once they get the letter, they may say, you know, I don't need the headache. I think I'm just going to, um, to let it go because I don't want to be seen as violating the law. So there you are. You're the person that just left this old practice. Now you've, um, you think you have this cush new job, but now you have no job at all in the community. So I think it goes back to what we were saying previously, which is take a look at the documents that, um, that you are signing and make sure you know what you're signing and know what you're asking your employees to sign so that everybody can understand if they are to be enforced, what are the ramifications of that? Let's talk about enforcement for just a moment because I've been involved in a number of situations where uh, the <clears throat> employee either thinks no one's going to, I know that this is written, but I'm on a good relationship with these people and I don't think that anybody's going to enforce this. Um, or you're the employer and you say, this person's leaving and I really don't want to enforce it. And then your counsel says, you've got a problem because you have this agreement with all of your employees. And if you begin to pick and choose 
that greatly weakens this. So just know that there is this problem of selective enforcement of these agreements, and that oftentimes gets people into situations and litigation that no one anticipated in advance. Ah, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right until it could potentially void a dozen other agreements, and then someone feels like there's no choice but to try to enforce this and extract some pound of flesh for the transgression. Well, it will be argued that if you don't enforce your rights, you have waived your rights. That will be the argument that the leaving employee makes, that um, you have an obligation to enforce the documents that, um, that um, have been signed. And if you choose not to do so, then they're toothless which means that everybody can get away with that. If you, if you, let, it, if you let it sit, unless there's something in the document that allows um, a reasonable person to conclude you've got ra a, a rationale for not enforcing this particular agreement, um, the next employee that you try to enforce it against will say, well, regarding the prior employees, you let them slide. We just assumed, we just assumed appropriately that we were within our rights, that you have waived this particular provision for everyone. And then instead of offense, you're, in, you're right off the bat on defense, not where you want to go. And, and certainly you could understand uh, with different employees of different genders, ethnicity, ages, that it walks you right into a discrimination claim that the, uh, that, that the younger white male physician didn't have it enforced against him but I'm older female or older, you fill in the blank, and therefore you're going to take a big swing at me and try to stop me from having my livelihood. Yeah. You may know, not have been what anybody intended, but that's the argument you're going to be faced with. That's the defense you'll be playing. So um, another point that's kind of interesting is that even in states that, um, that don't have enforceable non-compete agreements, I would argue that if you have been brought into a practice and you are preparing to leave, do not use the resources of that practice to um, to set yourself up in a new practice. That can be construed as unfair trade practices. And in doing so, even though you thought, well, I don't have to worry about non-competes in my state, but if during your employment, when it was assumed you were engaged, you know, 24-7 working for your employer, if you were... Um, secretly conspiring to leave and even, you know, downloaded the Excel database of all the patients to take with you to set up your marketing campaign and you start doing it in advance of the end of your employment, I think you will have a problem. I think the problem would be manifest as unfair trade practices, which is a separate bucket of law uh, relative to non-compete agreements. Yeah, absolutely. And this bit about, and I'm always kind of shocked that people think that they're going to get away with the 2 a.m. downloading of all of their patients onto a thumb drive and that they're going to escape with it in the middle of the night and no one will ever know. Right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. The IT guy can figure this out in about 12 minutes. And then you've got, as you described, Jeff, this, uh, this trade issue and trade secrets, but you also have a HIPAA violation because although you're working and you're seeing these people, they are truly patients of the uh, employer 
And mm -hmm. now you've taken records without patient permission and you have a potential uh, HIPAA violation on top of everything else. So um, it, it, that is never a good strategy to try to secret away information from your employer as you uh, plan your great escape. So I would say if you are planning your great escape, you should know um, how to do it, how to do it properly. Again, you know, I hate to be a broken record here. Get sound legal advice of what you can do and what you shouldn't be doing. The final things that I think we should touch on in terms of agreements, employment agreements, are who owns trade secrets and intellectual property on the way out. You just mentioned that the patients generally belong to the practice. The records generally belong to the practice also. Um, what about the website? What if you, the doctor, have a branded website as an employee and you've built it up? Or let's say it's not just the website, but a social media account um, and you're now considered an influencer. Who owns that on the way out? The answer is, well, it depends. I think everybody would be better served if these items were defined in advance of the departure. And so I would include these types of things in an employment agreement, meaning that if there's a departure, who owns any material that may be on the website? And here's an example, before and after pictures of a particular uh, doctor um, for practice. We've, we've certainly seen this where um, the employed physician will uh, take care of his patients. He does, he's a plastic surgeon, he's doing before and after pictures and has built this giant following um, with, you know, a strong reputation. He decides to leave and then he kindly asks his now previous employer, can I please get access to my patients, their pictures? I took these pictures and I would like them. And since I took the pictures, I own the copyright. Now, if it's defined in advance in the employment agreement, it may basically say that um, the intellectual property belongs to the practice, which would mean that the copyright would be assigned to the prior employer and there's nothing to fight over. The departing doctor is not going to get them. So I think these can be very um, muddy issues and it creates challenges related to HIPAA also because, you know, unless, unless the departing doctor has the patient's permission to use the pictures on his new website, and arguably they, they would not, there are a host of conflicting statutes, regulations, laws, et cetera, that create this thicket. When should you manage this? You should manage this in advance when everybody loves one another and is getting along quite well in the employment agreement. Get it taken care of upfront. Yet another reason to have good counsel. Absolutely, and this whole idea in fact, I was just involved with a, a dermatologist in, in negotiating uh, for the employee dermatologist who already had a bit of a social media uh, following going in, and um, the employer did not seem to be very concerned about that. But you don't really need a, a non-compete if, if you have the, the right um, language in place with the social media policy. If you allow someone to have their own Instagram account and use everything all day long from uh, your your office to build their private account, they can can walk away and and take 
patients, they don't need to uh, try to download things in the middle of the, the night. What you want is for your digital assets to be built up, the practice's digital assets to be built up, and not have employees basically declaring free agency uh, status. Um, that's from the employer standpoint. From the employee standpoint, which was what the person I was helping, uh, of course we wanted to have this new dermatologist have uh, his own accounts and, and have his own uh, following in social media because it created a, a, a valuable resource and a degree of autonomy. Uh, and so that we're able to accomplish that, but I don't know down the road if uh, that will be is freely available. I think as people catch on, there are going to be more restrictions on social media accounts because it really does add tremendous value to a practice. And it over time in employment agreements, many employment agreements have been silent as to who owns social media accounts um, on the way out. But be, uh, to your point, as people become more aware of the value of these accounts, they will just get bundled into the pre, you know, into the early employment agreements, which means like anything else, it can be negotiated. Think of it no different than who's going to pay for tail coverage, who's, you know, what's your salary, how many vacation days, what's the call schedule look like. This is just yet another term to be negotiated for on both sides. Who will own these social media accounts on the way out the door? All right, we are out of time today. Thank you for this whirlwind tour um, related to non-compete and non-solicitation agreements. We will talk soon. Bye-bye. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague, and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.